Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello there, and welcome to another episode of New Books in Asian American Studies. I'm Chris Patterson, and my guest today is Herod Suarez, who is an assistant professor of English and comparative American studies at Oberlin College. We'll discuss his book, The Work of Mothering, Globalization, and the Filipino Diaspora, which was published by the University of Illinois Press in November 2017. The work of mothering focuses on the domestic workers that make up around a third of all overseas Filipino workers, and whose remittances back to the Philippines contribute to about 9% of its GDP, or around $20 billion. These migrants circulate through the world, serving in positions of nurture, care, and service. Professor Suarez examines literary, film, and cultural representations of these figures as part and parcel of a broader historical movement that structures the Philippines under globalization. To understand the multiple sites and histories of these figures, Suarez employs a framework that he calls the diasporic maternal, which focuses on the various forms of care and service that these migrants occupy throughout the world. Through a reading method that Suarez calls uh, archipelagic reading, Suarez attempts to trace the undercurrents of these narratives that expose the feelings, desires, and strategies that exist outside of motherhood and maternal care. So I hope that intro made sense. If not, we can ask the author directly. So welcome, Herod. How's it going? I'm well. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. Uh, so let's just begin with an obvious first question. Uh, well, I live, I'm living in Hong Kong, so we see domestic workers from Indonesia, but of course, all over the world, their uh, domestic workers come from the Caribbean, uh, Latinas, um, Indonesian, and a lot of other groups. And so why focus on the Filipinas here? Um, you know, I think uh, as you were um, alluding to, uh, Filipinas occupy a, a significant percentage of that economy. Um, and when it comes to Philippine-centric sort of narratives, um, they're also a, a prominent sort of uh, figure in terms of the Philippine economy and Philippine history. So, um, so I think it's part of uh, those bigger conversations that we're having about global labor and overseas domestic labor um, but it made sense uh, just in terms of my own kind of intellectual trajectory to uh, to focus on the Philippines and see what uh, what sense I could make of it uh, through literature as I, as I do in the book. Okay. Uh, how did, um, well, as you said, part of your intellectual trajectory, where did that begin or how did, what was kind of influencing the, the work um, originally? I think you wrote it for your dissertation, right? So I assume it started in grad school. Uh, that's correct. So I, I was in grad school when the project began. And I think, uh, you know, at that time, I was in the, the mid-2000s, uh, early 2000s, um, there was a lot of great uh, sociological, social, social scientific work um, looking at overseas domestic labor from the Philippines, work by Rosal Perenas, um, Anna Romina Guevara, Robin Rodriguez, um, and others. Um, but I wasn't seeing a lot in terms of the cultural studies uh, and literature angle. So, uh, so Nefertiti Yar's work uh, became really influential on mine and helped me to think more about how, you know, how to, you know, how to make literature engage with these questions and what, what the sort of, um, what cultural production can have, uh, uh, can have to say on these matters uh, that can, complement, supplement, but also, I would say, intervene in some of the work that was going on uh, and that continues to go on in the social sciences. Uh, so the project comes out of, out of grad school and out of those, that sort of set of inquiries. I was in an American studies program, so it was, I was afforded the opportunity to, to do interdisciplinary work um, where, uh, you know, where literature and the social where, uh, were, were um, central to the, the, the program. Uh, so it was, it was, in some ways, for me, I guess, the perfect um, setting uh, by which I could pursue this project. Mm-hmm. Um, it helped me uh, bring, uh, it helped me draw on my 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 own literary sort of interests while trying to address things that seem to be pressing matters even uh, in today's world. 
I was intrigued also because, like you said, if you're uh, influenced a lot by uh, Nefertiti Tadir's work, um, both looking at cultural production and things like that. But the the text that you chose, um, when I first looked at the book, the texts that you chose were a bit uh, shocking to me because I was thinking like, okay, this is going to be about like movies like Ilo Ilo, like that are quite explicitly about you know Filipino workers. Um, and then the, the texts are um, talking kind of like some are a bit more canonical, like like Bulosan's uh, America's in the Heart. But then mm-hmm. short stories from Mia Alvar that you use, um, even though she I think she's written a couple short stories that are quite explicitly just, you know, about these uh, domestic workers. And then you chose uh, other ones, I think, in, in that text that are, that are quite different. So um, I think Nefri Tadier does similar things in her work as well, like kind of talks around or uses texts that have these same themes showing the history and the, lar- the broader um, forms of reading to do them. So what, what kind of went into your, how you chose these texts uh, and not just Ulusan, but you also go over like uh, apocalypse now, uh, the diaries around apocalypse now, perfume nightmares so things that like I, I usually wouldn't immediately communicate to be about this subject. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a, that's a, a very important question about the book because I think it will, the texts that, it, that, um, that are its focus would probably surprise other readers as well. Um, for me, it made sense in terms of trying to open up the category of overseas domestic labor and open up the category of uh, diasporic uh, Filipino identity um, because in that sense, uh, I was not, I was, I guess, sort of shifting away from the kind of empirical site, uh, we might say, of, you know, specifically characters or figures uh, that are or who are inhabiting actual positions of overseas domestic labor and moving instead to think about the broader context within which a Filipino identity sort of travels in the world. Uh, and it's you know, within that broader framework that something like, you know, the, the qualities that are also central to overseas domestic labor are actually um, relevant and operative um, and also subverted by the, the narratives that I look at. So, um, so there's very few uh, actually texts that I look at that are, you know, that are focused on overseas domestic labor, apart from maybe from that YouTube video that I, that I briefly discussed at the beginning of the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything else is really about other, you know, the ways in which the diasporic maternal, which is what I call it in the book, that circulates um, within circuits of Filipino uh, globalization, if, if you want to call it that. Right. And so, yeah, this is a good way to um, lead into the diasporic maternal. Um, so diaspora as in groups scattered around from the homeland, usually after some dispersal event. But what does that, what does it mean to see um, diasporas as maternal, if that's what the term is kind of doing? What does it mean to, what does diasporic maternal uh, mean as a framework? Oh, that's, um, that's good. Um, I think that for me, I was thinking about uh, you know, diasporic functions in my book uh, with, you know, juxtaposed over and against globalization. So if we're looking at overseas Filipinos, um, diasporic Filipinos uh, within with circuits of globalization where there is, you know, dominant forces that are um, positioning them within the global economy and, um, and after histories of colonialism and empire, then the diasporic is a way to think about, I guess, what else is happening there within those processes. And then that's, I think, what gets towards the, what I do call the archipelagic reading practice. So the, so the, the diaspora is this kind of underside of globalization is what I call it. And I'm borrowing from a lot of people, mm-hmm. I think, when I uh, make that claim. And then similarly, the maternal uh, is juxtaposed against motherhood. So I'm not looking at empirical biological mothers. Um, I'm thinking about um, the maternal sort of maternal qualities that that get naturalized uh, and imposed on Filipino subjects as they become diasporic. So the so when we put that together, the diasporic maternal is really 
um, a way to name the subject that escapes um, the, you know, the, the paradigmatic frameworks of globalization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was a, a, I think in your introduction, right, you talk about how um, something like less than half of most of these uh, overseas, uh, these migrant women are actually mothers, um, even though um, a lot of the uh, representation about them is basically them as uh, as mothers or as kind of like sacrificial mothers, um, and so that there's, there's of course this kind of, this uh, disjuncture right between uh, the way that they're seen and stereotyped and as figures, right, and then the way that um, they're kind of trained to appear um, through the training programs. So I thought that was really interesting. And then I, there's a section also where you compare this form of like gendering to like the Manong generation, who are almost always mm-hmm. males, right? Um, and then mm-hmm. uh, more sexually defined, like prostitutes and entertainers, um, and then mm-hmm. interracial marriage and things like that. So how did you mm-hmm. see, how did you kind of balance all those things? Because there's so many different types of gendering diasporas out there, just for Filipinos. Yeah, I mean, I think um, part of it was trying to figure out how to talk about Filipinos under globalization um, while taking account of the history of empire. So I think that... You know, I sort of play with the idea that if the little brown brother is the the, the sort of the you know the the symbol uh, of uh, you know benevolent imperialism, so that uh, you know the Filipino would be incorporated into the, the sort of the national family, um, then you know, and that was under the terms of U.S. empire. Then, as we shift into nationalism, independence and also neocolonialism and globalization, that little brown brother becomes a domestic worker of sorts mm-hmm. um, and pointing to the ways in which uh, the Filipinos are situated in, in very in very specific and directed ways, ways that are directed not just, and here's where I'm just um, reinforcing what you're saying about the, um, the sort of, um, the real context within which overseas labor takes place, you know, drawing on the work of like, uh, of Anna Guevara and, and Robin Rodriguez, um, you know, the, the Philippine state is, is uh, very complicit, right. In facilitating this image of, uh, overseas Filipinas as naturally, um, compliant, naturally, um, positioned for, and suitable for um, domestic labor, uh, and, and that works in concert with um, with with the needs of globalization. Uh, those are the dominant things that I was uh, sort of alluding to earlier. Um, and then, in terms of the uh, you know, to get back to your question about gendering and and the um, where I think my work is, is diverges a little bit from Nefertiti Sadiar's, I think is. You know, a lot of her work, her great work, uh, brings us to think about overseas Filipinas as uh, as sex workers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's a really sort of evocative line from her her uh, from her book about how you know the Philippines itself becomes the prostitute. It's not just um, the specific sex worker. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I wanted to think about. I want to sort of shift uh, the discourse a little bit to think about the maternal because overseas domestic labor is in contradistinction to sex workers, you know, this very visible, um, uh, heroic sort of um, figure for the, for the nation. Um, and so there's, there's a way to, to, to think about actually Filipino visibility um, and all the problems that uh, they're in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just feels like she's merging, I guess, ideas of prostitution, but with ideas of maternal sacrifice and <laughs> like, like the kind of caring magic and sort of life force that that uh, enables uh, uh, the w- that kind of comes from the way that Spanish colonizers also saw Filipinos. And so, I mean, you mentioned a bit of the um, history just now. I mean, we can go uh, deeper into that history and just start with uh, perhaps Spanish colonization, uh, which I th- is something that Tadier also spends a lot of time on. You know, uh, does the afterlife of Spanish colonization also impact the way that that we see these these workers now and then and the maternal now? I mean, I think that's a hard question uh, for me. Um, I think that it's, in some ways, it's, you know, uh, it's both. I mean, on one hand, you have the erasure of um, of the Spanish presence in terms of um, 
you know, the, the, the kind of, I guess, the American erasure of, of the Spanish presence in the Philippines, uh, the attempt to, again, sort of reposition Filipinos as these sort of uncivilized natives who have not been, um, you know, subject to European rule for 300 years. Uh, and so there's, there's sort of that that's at play. Uh, and then on the other hand, you have the very specific, um, I guess I guess if I had to, to really answer that, I would uh, – I'm locating the overseas domestic labor specifically within the, the narrative of U.S. imperialism and then globalization because that's that's really when that, that uh, you know, again, that shift from the little brown brother to the overseas domestic worker becomes um, sort of interesting and operative. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it would be interesting to see how how you know how others might think about it within uh, within the broader sort of history of Spanish and American imperialism. Yeah, so, yeah, so I noticed in your footnotes you do quote at length the um, the, uh, the more of the statements about like uh, Christianizing um, uh, that mm-hmm. came in, coming from the Americas uh, um, in the late 1890s, right? Uh, mm-hmm. when you mentioned the little brown brother, so can you explain that figure and how that begins to morph into uh, domestic labor or the kind of out-migration that we see now? Sure. I mean, so the little brown brother was um, was this sort of this trope, this colonial trope um, that you would see in, uh, you know, popular cultural discourses, political cartoons, um, narratives from um, from the turn of the century, um, as the U.S. was, um, you know, positioning itself as an imperial power, sort of in, in, in a newfound way, that, right? After the settler colonialism of, of um, you know, on the continent, uh, as the U.S. was expanding into the, uh, you know, Puerto Rico, Cuba, Hawaii, Guam, and the Philippines, uh, Little Brown Brother is one way in which that, that discourse framed Filipinos um, and framed the discourse of benevolent colonialism, where, you know, colonialism was unlike previous empires. It was not going to be this violent um, kind of uh, imposition or invasion, but it was going to be this civilizational discourse. We are bringing education, we are bringing religion, we are bringing Western values to uh, to these these um, Filipinos, and we are going to welcome them into our family as these little brown brothers who would be educated not only. Um, by our sort of, you know, n- not only through force, through coercion, but through the, you know, the, the Thomas sites, the USS Thomas, where, uh, where you know, uh, dozens of uh, school teachers um, descended upon uh, the archipelago. And so uh, there's, you know, the Little Brown Brother becomes this really important colonial trope um, staging U.S. empire. Um, and... And that's where, you know, that's where you start to see the Monong generation come in. Um, you know, a lot of the early uh, migrants um, were these sort of, uh, you know, people seeking education, Filipinos seeking education or they're already educated. Um, uh, and then as you move into the 20th century and you move into the, uh, you know, after the war, um, so now I'm thinking about Kathy Choi's work, you start to see this, this way in which, uh, nursing becomes important, mm-hmm. right? So the shift sort of immediately right after World War II and right after um, Philippine independence, mm-hmm. you see this this sort of um, move towards nursing uh, and, and that sort of outward mm-hmm. uh, migration and uh, into the U.S. and other places, uh, which then becomes through, mm-hmm. through Marcos and then on um, overseas domestic labor sort of like, you know, uh, at full tilt, um, and so there's this way in which I guess that colonial um, uh, narrative haunts contemporary Filipino subjects uh, across the world, um, because even if there is a sort of this promise of independence and promise of, you know, this sort of neoliberal kind of self that even now the Philippine state is, is uh, uh, promising or guaranteeing, um, there's still this way, these ways in which it's uh, it's a highly managed situation, highly regulated mm-hmm. in terms of facilitating, um, you know, specific forms of exploitation. And so again, that's all that sort of sociological and historical stuff that other um, other sort of academics have been doing really amazing work on. Uh, and what I, I guess where I'm sort of entering the, the the conversation a little bit is to try to think about what. Um, 
you know, the creative side of these things, what cultural production brings to the table, what literature and cinema uh, and art and poetry can, um, you know, can help, uh, help us see alongside um, these other uh, stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I like the way you put it as, um, you know, the little brown boy who was never really meant to grow up or is kind of, no matter what, is always going to be seen <laughs> as this kind of little brown figure, but then the gender can, can shift around. Um, and it reminds me of, I think, uh, Robin Rodriguez also puts it in a way where Philippines gained independence, but the in is in brackets. So um, I think all right. this kind of comes to head in your, um, so before we turn to the text, uh, you do spend quite a while uh, on the Marcos years and how those influenced, mm-hmm. um, the out migration. And, and like you said, I think a lot of these, the sociological work has also talked about this, the, the labor brokerage state, right. Um, the Philippines then becomes in Marcos, but can you explain a bit about, uh, why Marcos was such an important conjunctural moment? Yeah, I mean, and Marcos is, is a, I think it's a really, you know, important moment um, for a couple of reasons. Uh, Marcos helped institutionalize overseas domestic labor, um, you know, within, right at the, the sort of onset of martial law, right, overseas domestic labor the, um, becomes this, uh, you know, um, Process by which uh, Filipinos get uh, get sent overseas. Something that was already happening with the, with the sort of um, nursing trade, but now it gets roped into the conversation about unemployment, uh, severe unemployment in the Philippines, the threats of a sort of a communist insurgency that would, that um, were his alibis for imposing martial law. Um, at the same time, and so it gets institutionalized, and that's what's you know crucial to understand about Marcos. The other thing, though, that I try to point to is that, um, you know, the process has has only prolifer- proliferated since then. Hmm. So, you know, it's it, it's one thing to to credit Marcos with institutionalizing it, which he did. But uh, the ways in which he becomes this kind of, um, you know, the sole figure uh, held accountable for all of the, the sort of um, problems that, uh, that plague the Philippines, um, as if his, uh, you know, since his departure and with, with a series of, you know, more or less quasi-democratically uh, elected presidents, uh, we are in a different place. There's, you know, the 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 growth of overseas domestic labor would suggest otherwise, I think, uh, or at least complicate any kind of narrative of progress, mm-hmm. um, because for that very vulnerable population, um, the exploitation seems to have only uh, increased as the demand for that uh, for that labor and for those remittances uh, increases as well. Yeah, I especially like your your reading of um, the uh, of martial law as <laughs> like the, the same narrative of martial law was kind of put upon um, the outmigration of domestic work. That this is a you know a liberal progressive like liberal democratic progressive thing, even though mm-hmm. on the surface it's really not at all. <laughs> like domestic uh, domestic labor outmigration and martial law both seem counter to that. But I guess they're they incorporate into that narrative because they're both seen as uh, temporary. But then, as you say, the longer that these processes go, the 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 more that they kind of counter that their own uh, their own narrative. So I found that really uh, illuminating for the way I kind of understood where this is going. Um, uh, yeah. But so before you you mentioned how so uh, let's get um, past from the history a little bit and talk about uh, the method a bit. Uh, the the maternal or the, the diasporic maternal, and how that leads to uh, reading, and uh, <laughs> this is a, a, always a difficult word for me to, to say the archipelagic reading practices that you go throughout um, that you take throughout the book and um, seem a bit scattered onto every text. And of course, we're thinking of like I guess the scattered islands of a literal or archipelago, but you're also using that word um, in a more abstract or more like heuristic type of way. So mm-hmm. can you explain a bit of, of what it means to read archipelagically? Sure. And, um, you know, I mean, I think that there's been this great um, sort of turn towards the archipelago that we see in American studies now. Um, and so I think I was, um, you know, 
uh, energized by that by that discourse. Um, as you say, the archipelago is a, it's a figure of islands um, scattered. Um, I play with its etymology in terms of looking at how you know uh, it actually in some ways refers to the waters around the islands um, and what to do with that. Um, so to read archipelagically is then to not just read for, um, you know, for that sort of scattering, but read, as I say, I mean, read the negative image of that scattering, which is say, try to read the waters around those islands. And is there a way to do that? That is getting at that sort of diasporic underside so if there's a if there's a one way to tell the story about overseas domestic labor through sort of um, you know social science tools of of mapping the kind of exploitation of overseas labor, um, the ways in which the state is propping them up as heroes in order to facilitate that exploitation, how does literature encourage us to uh, see what else is happening by giving us details into these characters' lives. Again, characters who are not, you know, who are not empirically overseas domestic workers, but are are part of a kind of diasporic Filipino um, sort of collective. And maybe collective is a, maybe I arrived at that word, um, you know, fortuitously because I think the the archipelago is a way of thinking about connection in a scattered way. Mm. Um, it's thinking about connection in a way. It's thinking about diaspora in a way that um, that resists, you know, diasporic nationalisms, right? So, so there's always this nationalist call to to belong in a ver- very kind of you know uh, rigorous, uh, strict, and disciplined way. But these figures who are uh, you know the figures that I look at and the, the narratives that I that, that I sort of probe into. Are, are sort of creating all these other kinds of connections uh, so that you see that in the different chapters that, that I uh, that, are, that constitute the book. Uh, there's, there's other things that are happening here that maybe get us to see, you know, what I think I call the, the archipelagic underside of, uh, you know, of globalization. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's when that term became clear for me throughout the book was the, yeah, the, when you talk about the underside of the undercurrents, you know, so mm-hmm. because I think when you first uh, conceptualize the term, you talk about it as like blurring the division between seas and islands. Right. And, and so that, I guess that, that image stayed with me uh, whenever you brought that term back and I could see the kind of undercurrents that you were talking about um, through all these texts that don't, like we said before, are not explicitly about domestic work, not even explicitly about maternity. Um, but then, mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's always kind of there, and, and in a way, I mean, would you say these are also kind of the like um, the racial, the racial imaginings of Filipinos, or that these are kind of the way that Filipinos imagine themselves, so that we're seeing the kind, so that the archipelagic is kind of a way of seeing their presumptions um, about things like maternity, sexuality, and gender that aren't exactly the explicit, you know, um, symbol that they're trying to deal with, but that it's all kind of there in the background, and that's what creates this collective in a way? Um, yes and no. I mean, I would say that it is, it is a kind of experience that's perhaps illegible Hmm. to dominant ways of talking about, you know, the experience of overseas Filipinos. On the other hand, I, I would, um, I would be cautious about how I, you know, make claims about their actual experiences. Mm -hmm. Um, because I want to think of, you know, uh, some of the readings that I do, I think um, the, re- the the characters themselves uh, aren't even really, you know, intentionally subverting anything. They're just, you know, they're, they're the ways that they navigate their lives are um, they're, they're just sort of under the spell of a kind of archipelagic a process that is not entirely definable by by dominant um, narratives. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I like that, um, that the, the, that the image that you begin with the seas and islands kind of doesn't just disrupt. I mean, it, it's, it's about the ep- epistemological um, presumptions, right. And how this type of reading um, 
contributes that resists that and, and, and settles that. And so, uh, that was something very interesting that, um, one, uh, question that I want so before we get to the, the chapters in, in the book, um, I like to ask about the writing process because we're all, I mean, if academics are always trying to like talk around the writing process, but, um, I did read this dissertation a while ago. I, I was in grad school when it came out. Um, and so, uh, it's of course changed quite a lot in the past, you know, I think it was t- 2010 or 2011. Yeah, I got it. yeah. And so, uh, maybe I didn't, I didn't get to it until a while after that, but, um, can you talk a bit about how the the, the you know the it, the book transformed throughout the years from dissertation to um, you know workshopping conferences to uh, actually publishing and you know the review process publication and all the the change that have been happening in America and in the Philippines as well like how does how does this book now compare to the dissertation which was originally just for the kind of committee audience and now it's for a wide academics and academic and public audience. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it was the conference circuits, but it and it was it was finding um, finding people who are working on um, you know adjacent topics um, and trying to trying to um, trying to make my work speak to them. I think mm. yeah, was recognizing that there was going to be a, a bigger audience that needed to uh, you know that 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 I think could you know, could benefit from, from some of the things that I have to say, uh, more specifically though, I think transforming from the dissertation to the book, um, was as, as is the case with, with, you know, with many people, um, the introduction specifically making that much more, uh, grounded. Um, and that happened, I think, uh, really under the, you know, working with, the editors at the University of Illinois working with Martin Monalanson, who was just amazing in terms of, um, you know, bringing a kind of focal point to the, the introduction. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and especially in terms of, um, I guess, asking me to stake a greater claim in terms of the social scientific interventions that my project was doing. I think, you know, uh, the dissertation was, was very much grounded in historical and then especially in literary, critical, theoretical readings. Mm. Uh, but I think w- what, I, what I'm you know, really happy about in terms of the introduction is how now there's a very specific context, there's focused um, kind of conversation there about um, you know, how, um, how feminists are writing about overseas labor um, and how the maternal gets, you know, how the maternal functions in those discourses. Uh, and then I can sort of move towards the archipelago there, move towards the diasporic maternal there. Um, once that framework um, arrived to the project, it felt like a pretty different book by then. And then it, you know, and then it's all the other, you know, it's just all the, the, the sort of nitty gritty parts of, uh, revision, making sure that each chapter spoke to that new kind of framework. Um, that was, uh, and that all happened kind of at the very end of the um, the sort of timeline for this. But it does, I think. I think you're right. I think it's it's quite different, even though some of the core readings are the same, but the context and their significance um, is different in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I- I like to spotlight the, the whole contribution of editors and, and peer reviewers and things like that. Cause it's alarming when I have to explain what, especially a first book, right. has to go through how many years it takes, you know, decade is very, as often kind of the average, it seems for the first book. Um, it's always a fascinating process. Um, okay. Like, yeah, go ahead. It, it, sorry. No, it just feels like a team, you know, there's so, there's so many hands in it and it's interesting. I think, uh, yeah, it, it makes it does make me feel um, excited to to you know to do it again to write another book because I think now I have a little sense of how this thing works and um, and yeah it was it was a good process I think overall. It's great, great. Um, okay, can we uh, let's start with the going straight into the chapters? Um, and I only have about one question per chapter, so um, sure. I think I'm just I want to just try and pinpoint some of the major concepts that you go over it. And the, the first chapter, it feels like the, the big, basic like focal point, as you said before, could be to this um, excessive writing or writing excessively. 
Um, and then how, at least when I imagine excess, I imagine it spilling over, you know, conceptions of the nation, of globalization, of maternity. Uh, but I'm not exactly sure if that's, that's what, where you're going with it. So can you take us through this concept of uh, excessive writing? Yeah, I mean, there's just you know the the my um, my case studies, so to speak, in the in that chapter are are what really drive um, the idea of excessive writing. So when I was looking at, I think Nick Joaquin's uh, mm-hmm. the the woman who to enables, um, and pairing that with uh, you know across across decades with Mia Alvar's um, short stories, um, but in each case, right there are these uh, there are these moments where the actual act of language production, textual production is, um, is so, you know, amazingly kind of, uh, described, um, in ways that, that emphasize excess and that show how attempts to pin the subject to the nation, um, in some ways, you know, attempt to foreclose that excess, but that those, in each case, the characters nevertheless um, get past that. They, you know, language, sort of the language by which they are produced allows them to exceed the nation um, in, in, you know, in disturbing and mystifying in perplexing ways. I mean, I think one side note that I, I mean, that might be worth sort of adding is that, um, you know, that there's no, uh, the reason that I call it an archipelagic reading practice is because I'm not, you know, there, there's no answer that I arrive at. I don't know that these characters give us specific strategies or solutions or ways to solve any of the problems that, that I'm framing in the book. But, um, and yet, you know, what they are doing or what these texts are doing, the ways they function as texts, is to produce enough of a crisis that it makes us, you know, have to have to seek other questions, if not other answers. Uh, and that's what they're doing in this chapter. They are, they're, uh, they're writing excessively. They're writing excessively on their bodies. Uh, it's a woman who has two navels. This rumor is she has two navels. Or in this other, you know, in Mia Alvar's uh, short stories, where um, where writing takes over uh, the lives of the characters in both of the short stories that look at it's. Uh, the, I mean, I, those are just really. It, it's a sort of a, a, a story-driven chapter, if you will, and it's. I think it's all the better for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, and they're very different texts at first glance. Like as you say, <laughs> decades apart and. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah, and one very diasporic writer. I guess both very diasporic, but one more grounded these in like Filipino literature these days, and the other, um, mm-hmm. yeah, a bit a bit uh, disassociated. So it was it was really interesting seeing those connections. And I think in the introduction you talk about uh, Wong Kar Wai's movie uh, uh-huh. Days of Being Wild, right? So that I like that it's interesting seeing all, all these different archival like evidence and traces that. Um, this reading practice kind of allows for, um, yeah. 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 Uh, okay. Well, let's move to the second, cause you, in the second chapter, you also talk about excessive writing. Um, at least the way that you put it though, that you're going in kind of a different direction with it. Uh, in this chapter, you're talking about, uh, Jessica Hagedorn's dream jungle and apocalypse now and, and the diaries associated with apocalypse now. Uh, but you're concerned with excess, as you say, that as an excess that kind of stabilizes rather than destabilizes, and even if just temporarily. Uh, and you call it an, stabilizing an alternative whose coordinates are important to trace. So can you talk about this more stabilizing notion of excessive writing that you're getting from these texts? Sure. Uh, I mean, in, I think in um, the, the, you know, the main character in Dream Jungle, um, the chapter is driven by you know, how that novel ends and her, her sorts of decision, um, the decisions that, that, that sort of inform, uh, her life. Um, and so, you know, in that case, um, and similarly, but in, in more pointed ways, I guess I would say in more specific ways I get, um, she gets asked to be 
a particular kind of mother within both and sort of a nationalist framework um, and then by a kind of imperial framework. And that's where um, Eleanor Coppola's notes come, uh, you know, comes into the, the, the chapter because there's this, uh, you know, the dream juggle takes place as a sort of fictionalized um, uh, setting of Apocalypse Now, which was filmed by Francis Ford Coppola and whose wife was uh, joined, uh, joined him for much of the, the filming uh, with, uh, with her three kids. And so um, Eleanor Coppola's notes and the documentary that followed uh, were interesting sort of ways in which we understood a kind of white womanhood in the, the sort of the post-colony struggles that she has, that she wants to be a filmmaker herself but it feels really kind of like strapped by, you know, by the expectations put upon her as this, this, uh, as a, as a wife and mother. Um, and so that, uh, and then there's only a sliver of that, that Hagedorn fictionalizes in dream jungle. But, um, but with just that, I think Lena, the main character, um, has to respond with both of those as she has to figure out what to do with her life. Um, and so I guess without giving too much away, you know, her, yeah, the ways that the, the novel concludes in contradistinction to both of those sort of uh, avenues uh, generates a different uh, relationship to language and to the nation and to the maternal, right? Cause she is actually a mother and she's actually having to, um, um, to again, to respond to these pressures. And yet she, she finds a different way out um, through her connections with, with other sorts of characters on the film, other animal characters on the film. Um, and what I think maybe most striking about the novel is that it ends uh, somewhat ambivalently. I mean, we're not sure what to make of her. And I think that's important. I mean, I, I, I really... I really play a, play with that in my chapter because because it ends in a way that you know I mean, the book closes. But how what we make of that ending, I think, determines how we read Lena and how we read motherhood after that uh, after that novel. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, this also speaks to your concept of excess that she's like even at the end of the novel, you don't you don't feel the quite resolution of like knowing her truly. Um, and I get that, but that feels, I guess, both the destabilizing of the, of chapter one, right. But, um, do you feel like this also does kind of stabilize some, some, something for, for the audience that, uh, perhaps the previous chapter did not in the sense of what excessive writing can do? Maybe. I mean, I think I, I'm appreciating the way that you're helping me to, to sort of rethink that uh, and the, and those two chapters related to each other. I think maybe there is a sort of, you know, the, my readings of that uh, excessive writing that Lena uh, inhabits. Uh, there's a stability that she finds in that instability. I mean, that mm. sounds like you know, sort of a uh, just sort of this wordplay there. But um, no, that, that's exactly like, yeah, what I was, what I felt you were aiming at towards the end is that yeah, to be stable with instability or be settled with unsettledness. Right. Ways that, that doesn't happen, that, that isn't the emphasis of uh, the, the previous, you know, the stories in the previous um, chapter. I think you're right about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Then that all these chapters are very well leading from one to the other, I should say, because this chapter then leads to uh, chapter three, um, where you consider the diasporic maternal in Kidlat uh, Tahimik's famous uh, 1977 film, Perfume Nightmare. And this was also sponsored by or, you know, heralded by uh, Francis Ford Coppola, yeah. right? And so that you have that immediate connection there. Um, and this is usually seen as, you know, it's usually known for its like <clears throat> sharp visual aesthetics um, that explicitly play with kind of anti-imperial, anti-Hollywood um, forms that this is also the way that it was kind of sold to the public too. So it's, it's hard to get it out of that narrative. And I think this is my favorite chapter, be- probably because of all the theory that <laughs> you kind of, of the literary theory that you use throughout the chapter, um, and, and cinema theory to read the text. Uh, but what, what do you get out, out of this film that, that considers, you know, the Filipino domestic worker and, and, um, the diasporic maternal? Um, I, you know, I think it's a fun chapter because it's, 
it really uh, indulges, I guess, in in a bit of formal uh, analysis in terms of uh, you know its main its sort of main thrust is to read um, is to listen to the film and to, to mm-hmm. think about listening as a kind of a different um, uh, um, way of analyzing the film that does not necessarily add up to or um, simply complement the visual. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in Tahimik's film, uh, through a close reading of it, uh, and through a close reading of a very specific scene, um, there's a way in which that disjuncture between the visual and the oral um, allows for the opening of something else uh, for the viewer. Um, and so it's interesting that, that's, uh, that that was your favorite chapter. It was, I think it was probably the first... That was the first um, published kind of uh, the, my first published essay was was a slice of that chapter, mm. um, and uh, and it was a, it's a very different chapter, I guess, and, uh, because it it, um, it engages with film uh, more so than than the other chapters, um, and, and also with, it, uh, with queer theory, right? Like the I think this is where you where Jose Munoz and Halberstam and people become more relevant, right, in this chapter. Um, if I'm remembering correctly, and uh, like so, the anti-imperial, anti-Hollywoodness also become also says a lot as well about uh, like heterose- straight time, <laughs> heterosexuality, and, and these things too. Yeah. So in both uh, this chapter and the next one, I think uh, queer theory becomes more uh, important. Um, here, it's thinking about the children in the film, um, uh, and again, sort of to read them maybe against the the sort of heroic and main character of the of the film who is played by by Tahimik himself um, it's interesting to think about so this chapter is also different because it focuses on children rather than um, than the than maternal figures the maternal figure in the film is is um, you know it's sort of less interesting in terms of the ways I'm thinking about the maternal mm. I guess she along with her with the the you know the, with Tahimik's character um, inhabit fairly, I would, you know, argue sort of conventional modes of, of, of subjecthood that the children that I read in, you know, in just a couple of scenes, uh, you know, kind of resist and they resist it through the, through that kind of interplay between the visual and the, the, the oral, the sonic, um, in terms of, uh, you know, how the film actually plays out. Um, but I do, you know, it's, yeah, I, I, I wanted to emphasize the, the sort of aesthetic there. Um, this book is committed to, to sort of literary critical readings as interdisciplinary it is, as, as much as I'm invested in sort of social questions and political questions, I think that the literary critical is, is crucial to, to, to complicating, uh, those, those questions, um, uh, and not in a way to sort of, I guess, romanticize or fetishize the humanities, um, in, in, you know, in some sort of um, older or more conventional and more problematic kind of way, but because there's actually things that we learn from the texts that are in front of us, if we pay attention to the nuances the way that I tried to in this chapter and, and, and in others. Mm-hmm. Yes, and so uh, let's go to your to your last chapter uh, where you talk about the diasporic maternal uh, within immigration to the United States through reading uh, Blue Sun's America's in the Heart and uh, Brian Rowley's American Son. And this it goes back to what you were saying in the last chapter, how um, the maternal figures are there, uh, but these texts are mostly known for building a kind of male Filipino-American, like Filipino-American masculinity uh, with all the... Tributes and problems of that, and and so how do you? This this chapter was probably for me when I was thinking about it. Like this is what uh, was one of the most um, uh, shocking in the way that it takes two texts that we think we know, we, we think we have pinned down, right? Like as and then as you're saying, it, they have these excesses, um, and then the archipelagic reading uh, does something different with them. And so, uh, can you explain a bit about how you read these texts? Um, given the the, the uh, diasporic maternal and and all the, the queer theory that we were talking about before, sure. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you know the the Bulosan, uh, uh 
part with which I begin the chapter is is really indebted to both uh, Rachel Lee and Martin uh, Joseph Ponce's readings of, uh, respectively, of uh, of of America's in the heart. Um, uh, I try to bring those two into conversation with each other um, in terms of the sort of gendered reading of uh, of the of the text and of the um, the sort of transnational doubled mode of address uh, in America's in the heart. Um, and, and I bring all of that to think about, um, you know, another sort of marginal figure in that book, uh, one who is not uh, the main character, but who is, you know, a sex worker who, who seems to be a sex, worker who, um, you know, has this sort of, uh, interaction with Carlos as he publishes his first book of poetry. Um, and I try to think about what, you know, the significance of that in terms of um, a Filipino identity in the U.S., uh, sort of uh, the character's relationship to other migrant laborers, his efforts to bring um, migrant labor and creative writing together in, in such uh, vexed and complicated uh, ways that he he arguably fails to do so through, uh, you know, by the, even by the, the, the book, the end of the, the book, because precisely of her, her sort of intervention there. Um, and so I think, you know, the, that marginal figure becomes really important to what, you know, how that book actually works um, and touches on things that are happening throughout the, the, the book uh, uh, in ways that I think we haven't uh, fully absorbed. Um, and then I bring that actually all all the way to Brian Rowley's American Son, because of the sort of small accident, and it is an accident. I actually talked to Brian Rowley about this. He, he didn't know that um, he wasn't aware that that um, America's in the Heart travels through Medford, Oregon, which is where American Son's character travels through. Mm. Uh, sort of a nice coincidence, um, which I you know I sort of tried to to juxtapose and play with. And so in Amer- American Sun, I bring that to the question of liberal multiculturalism, uh, sort of heteronormative mu- uh, multiculturalism, and, and the ways in which uh, that book queers any kind of sense of belonging, um, not just to a kind of national identity, uh, but also to a kind of, uh, you know, so, sort of homonormative kind of American uh, sense of belonging, um, that character is, is um, you know, the main character there is um, unresolved. And so if that's the case, then I turn to, the, you know, his mother, who is um, very much a kind of a, I think the way that most people would tend to read her is, uh, is something that I resist. I think there's something else going on there. And so I, I bring attention to that you know, as that chapter and long chapter, but I, um, um, but it seems to me, it seems to make sense to, to end with her because she she actually becomes this kind of like the marginal figure in in America in the heart is, is somehow the book is all is as much about her as it is about um, you know the main character. Mm-hmm. And in, in a very nice way, the kind of rereading of like paternal texts or, or texts about you know masculinity is then followed mm-hmm. in your conclusion where you, you talk about the, the most paternal figure, uh, <laughs> Jose Rizal, the father of the, the Filipino nation. And so why conclude a book about, you know, uh, the work of motherhood with this very paternal figure? And, and how does that, how do you reread, um, his, la- I think it's his last letters, right? Um, it was his, you know, it's that sort of under examined, uh, moment of his, um, of the legend of his death where he, he is supposed to have turned around when he was being, uh, he asked to be, you know, to, to, he could face the firing squad. Uh, the petition was denied and he turned around anyways. Uh, it's such a, you know, it's such an interesting moment in, in his life and in the life of, you know, of the Philippines that um, in spite of all the work that is written about Rizal, there's, you know, that is, there's not a lot of mention of that. And so I wanted to sort of uh, play with that and going back to, you know, the transformation of the little Brown brother to the overseas domestic worker. I try to think about resolve, not only as the father of the nation, but as the, the sort of maternal figure, the diasporic maternal figure, uh, Park Salons, because he ushers in 
this narrative, you know, of or he ushers in the kind of a uh, you know a century and on's worth of you know the kinds of of impulses that are driven by um, nationalistic independence, but also the undercurrents that are happening there uh, all throughout. Um, and it's 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 all those undercurrents that I you know that are marginalized that I that I, I think I link to the marginalization of his turning around. I mean, I think there's um, I guess the fact that we as a, as a, as a sort of a critical community have not done as much with that turning, uh, that gesture of his, uh, in his final moment, um, you know, it, it, it speaks to the, the, the other things that we may have, you know, turned equally away from that we have marginalized that we have not figured out how to read that we have, uh, that we have no archive for, that we don't know how to archive, perhaps because of the the, the, the parameters of our sort of dominant epistemological frames, mm-hmm. which in a sense are the, the very things aimed at us, right? <laughs> this this image of turning towards the literally the guns or the weapons, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, I mean, you can. There's so much to play with. I mean, you can play with. I think I talk, I talk about Lot's wife turning back. You can think about Benjamin's, you know, angel of history, uh, turning back and looking at, um, you know, uh, so there's, it was a, it was a fun, um, I wasn't sure how to fit it into this, this project. And I thought maybe you would, I'd have to save it for, for something else, but it made sense as a kind of, you know, sort of interesting epilogue to the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it was very, very interesting. And I liked how it again, kind of comes pretty organically from all the thoughts in the book and, and how you reread masculinity towards in chapter four. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, to kind of conclude, I, I'd like to, because this is a wider audience than most of the, uh, a lot of academic writers have in mind, you know, on the, on the podcast forum, I like to always ask, you know, do you, do you envision the book having an, an impact on, um, on, you know, Filipino diasporas, uh, the lives of foreign domestic workers or another, kind of non, perhaps non-scholarly or non, you know, quote-unquote academic context? Um, I mean, I, I, I would hope so. Um, I, I wouldn't be so presumptuous as to, to, to immediately uh, claim so. I, I think that, of course, like with this kind of work, it's, um, you know, to, to, to invoke one, uh, one archipelagic metaphor, it's about making waves, right? It's about sort of like mm. uh, there's a way in which it can, it can, um, by through several sort of channels or processes um, impact the ways that we think about them. uh, And that can maybe uh, impact, um, you know, that process. I I don't, again, I don't really imagine that that's the case. The world works um, in, you know, in in different ways. And, and, um, but I think that, um, you know, at the least it would be interesting if, and I haven't yet, I've yet to look into it. It would be interesting to have this book circulate in the Philippines, um, and see what, you know, what kind of reception it gets there. Um, and, and, you know, and maybe there it can, I I know that, yeah, as an interdisciplinary text, I think ideally it would, you know, there are, you know, non-academics who might find it interesting, but at the same time, it's also, you know, it, it's very much a book written uh, within specific kinds of professional parameters. And, um, and so, you know, uh, one can only help. I think. Well, great. Okay. So thank you um, so much for joining us um, and for answering <laughs> all these questions. Uh, do you mind ending by uh, sharing with us any uh, new research that you've been working on? You described that you might be interested in uh, or that you're ready, set <laughs> to write another book. So what, what feels next for you after this? Um, I mean, I'm, <laughs> I have no idea. I mean, I, I think that um, even though the archipelago is important to this book, um, it was something that are, that arrived to it fairly late in the process. I think, I guess I'm saying all that because there's, there's a lot more to be said about it. There's a lot more that I want to do with it. Um, and so I think my next, 
whatever it is that I do next is going to probably engage with that in a more substantive way in a, in a, in a but also maybe thinking, uh, yeah, I'm not sure where to go with that, but I, I, I want to stay with the archipelago and, and think about what other kinds of work uh, it can help uh, produce. Okay. Fabulous. Um, well, thank you very much for being on the show today. Uh, take care. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for listening to my interview with Herod Suarez on his book, The Work of Mothering. If you have any questions, grievances, or suggestions, you can message me on the New Books in Asian American Studies Facebook page. Thanks. Thanks.